It's been more than a century, yet if it weren't for TV commercials, more people probably would have heard of the Pony Express than of Federal Express. The Pony Express was a private express company that carried mail by an organized relay of horseback riders. The eastern inn was St. Joseph, Missouri, and the western terminal was in Sacramento, California. The cost of sending a letter by Pony Express was $2.50 an ounce. If the weather and horses held out and the Indians held off, that letter would complete the entire 2,000-mile journey in a speedy 10 days, as did the report of Lincoln's inaugural address. It may surprise you that the Pony Express was only in operation from April 3, 1860 until November 18, 1861, just 17 months. When the telegraph line was completed between two cities, the service was no longer needed. Now, being a rider for the Pony Express was a tough job. You were expected to ride 75 to 100 miles a day, changing horses every 15 to 20 miles. Other than the mail, the only baggage you carried contained a few provisions, including a kit of flour, cornmeal, and bacon. In case of danger, you also had a medical pack of turpentine, borax, and cream of tartar. In order to travel light and to increase speed of mobility during Indian attacks, the men always rode in shirt sleeves, even during the fierce winter weather. You can imagine what that would have been like on horseback in shirt sleeves going through the Rocky Mountains. How would you recruit volunteers for this hazardous job? An 1860 San Francisco newspaper printed this ad for the Pony Express. Wanted. Young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over 18, must be expert riders willing to risk daily, orphans preferred. Those were the honest facts of the service required, but the Pony Express never had a shortage of riders. That's some commitment. We need to be honest with the facts about the discipline of serving God even in our own day. Like the Pony Express, serving God is not a job for the casually interested. It's costly service. He asks for your life. He asks for service to Him to become a priority, not a pastime. He doesn't want servants who will give Him the leftovers of their life's commitments. Serving God isn't a short-term responsibility either. Unlike the Pony Express, His kingdom will never go under, no matter how technological our world gets. The mental picture we have of the Pony Express is probably much like the one imagined by the young men of 1860 who read the newspaper ad. Scenes of excitement, camaraderie, and the thrill of adventure filled their heads as they swaggered over to the express office to apply. Yet few of them envisioned that excitement would only occasionally punctuate the routine of the long, hard hours and the loneliness of the work. The discipline of serving is like that. Although Christ's summons to service is the most spiritually grand and noble way of life to live, it is typically as pedestrian as washing someone's feet. One writer put it this way, in some ways, we would prefer to hear Jesus call to deny father and mother houses and land for the sake of the gospel than his word to wash feet. Radical self-denial gives the feel of adventure. If we forsake all, we even have the chance of glorious martyrdom. But in service, we are banished to the mundane, the ordinary, the trivial. The ministry of serving may be as public as preaching or teaching, but more often it will be sequestered as nursery duty. It may be as visible as singing a solo, but usually it will be as unnoticed as operating the sound equipment to amplify the solo. Serving may be as appreciated as a good testimony in a worship service, but typically it's as thankless as washing dishes after a church social. Most service 
Even that which seems the most glamorous is like an iceberg. Only the eye of God ever sees the larger, hidden part of it. That's going to be the theme of the Gospel of Mark, and as we study it together, the theme of service, servanthood. And one of the great lessons of servanthood is to study this Gospel and to see the most preeminent servant who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. Jesus summoned the multitudes with His disciples and said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels shall save it. Discipleship, service, servanthood, the gospel's ultimate sacrifice. That's what we're going to study as we discover and move in and through and along in our journey through Mark's gospel. We're going to discover the essence of discipleship, of servanthood, and we're going to do so by looking at the ultimate servant himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. We could even say that the theme verse of Mark's Gospel, and I hope to return to it time and time and time again as we study on Sunday evenings together, Mark 10.45. Turn with me to Mark 10.35. I hope that this verse becomes embedded in your mind as we move through this Gospel account. Some of you might know it quite well, It simply says this in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ. He's the theme of this Gospel of Mark. And as you turn back to Mark chapter 1, I want to read for you the introduction to this Gospel which depicts the suffering servant, the ultimate servitude of Jesus Christ and His giving His life as a ransom for many. The first portion of the Gospel of Mark as contained in chapter 1, verses 1 to 13 is really a prologue. It's an introduction. And as we attempt to study it tonight, I want to read for you verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Before we jump into this introduction, this prologue to the Gospel of Mark, I want us to talk a little bit about the fact that John Mark, as we studied 
last Lord's Day is the author, and you know much about him at this point as we delve into what the Scripture has to say about this remarkable man. And one thing that we need to do tonight in order to set the stage for the understanding of this prologue to Mark's Gospel, indeed Mark's Gospel itself, we need to understand a few things about what a gospel is. What is this gospel account of Mark and of Matthew and of Luke and of John? What are they intending to convey to us and how are they different than the other portions of Scripture that we know as our New Testament? Well, first of all, Mark's gospel fits into what is commonly called the synoptics. How many of you have heard this term, the synoptics? Good. The synoptic gospel is the study of both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a term that compares how Matthew, Mark, and Luke are to be understood together. Because you see, the first three gospels agree very extensively in their language, in the material they include, and in some cases even in the very order in which events and sayings from the life of Christ are recorded. Now because of these features, these three books are commonly called the synoptics. And that's a very, very common term to any serious student of the Bible. It comes from the word soon, which means together with, and optic, which means seeing or to see. And from the word synoptic, we understand the concept of seeing these three Gospels together. Now, the Gospel of John, you might be wondering about, is not a part of the synoptics as classically understood. That because John is very different in his approach to the Gospel account of Jesus Christ and because of the great differences in his Gospel message, he is always studied separately. Now because Mark is one of the synoptics, We need to mention a few things about its place with the other Gospels. First of all, I believe that the Gospel of Matthew was the first Gospel written. You say, what's so important about that? It appears first in the canonical set of our New Testament writings, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark coming after that. Well, in present New Testament study, the vast majority of scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel written. It is commonly called in those circles Markan priority. That is that all of the other gospel writers received much of their information from Mark. And because of that, these other editors or redactors, because you see most of these New Testament scholars of our contemporary society don't believe that the name that is ascribed as the author of these gospels really is the author that they believe editors came later in time and put together these gospel accounts and attached a name to it. We don't believe that. We believe that the gospel of Matthew was the first gospel written, probably around the early to mid-50s, and that the gospel of Luke and Mark were written around the same time of each other, somewhere between 61 and 65 A.D. Now, The Gospel of Mark has a very, very unique character about it, and it makes this Gospel account quite unique in its setting. There's a bit of mathematical comparison that has been done in looking at the synoptics, and it's interesting to note that Mark contains 93% of the material that is also found in Matthew and Luke. That would give you some indication as to why these scholars believe that was the first gospel account written because it has almost all of the data concerning Jesus Christ and His earthly ministry. Mark is also found in Matthew around, 50, or around 91% of the time and Mark's material is found around 53% of the time in Luke's gospel account. So you can see that basically we're talking essentially about the same material for the most part. And as we move in and through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to see very clearly that I'm going to go back and forth, back and forth from Mark and Matthew and Luke quite interchangeably. And don't be confused by that. Just know that they are essentially, for the most part, sharing the similar kinds of material about the earthly life of our Lord. The question then is how Mark contributes uniquely to the synoptic accounts of our Lord. First of all, let me tell you about Mark's audience. 
Remember last week I told you about the author of the Gospel of Mark, about his life, about how he came to be that author of his Gospel account. Now let me tell you something about the audience that Mark is writing to. Remember that we said at the end of John Mark's ministry, he's in Rome where he has been mentored by Peter and Paul, mainly Peter. And when he comes to pen his gospel account of Jesus Christ, he centers on the Romans. That's his audience for the most part. He is in Rome and he is writing his gospel account predominantly to Romans. Obviously, both Roman believers and Roman unbelievers. And by the way, remember that I mentioned also that during the time of the writing of his gospel or it may have even been earlier as to its writing, Christians in Rome are undergoing great persecution. I have uh, no doubt believed that you have heard of the intense Roman persecution that was occurring in the first part of the 60s A.D. after Christ's death. It was so intense, in fact, that you remember from reading your history, you may have studied that either in high school or college, that there was a famous burning in Rome. It burned the entire city. You know that Nero was the emperor at the time, and it happened in 64 A.D. And Nero himself blamed the Christian community for the burning of Rome. You remember that from studying the accounts of that particular event. And he blamed the Christians even to such an extent that when he was at his heyday, he had such a hatred for Christianity, you probably have heard that during some of his illustrious parties at the emperor's palace, he used Christians who were, to, who were strapped on poles and lighted to light his garden parties. That's how much Nero hated Christianity. And so martyrdom became a very, very commonplace in the time that Mark is even pinning his gospel. And so that is why, obviously, Mark centers in on several themes that weave their way in and through his gospel account. Suffering, persecution, discipleship, giving up, counting the cost. You see, all of these things to a Roman mind, especially the believers of the day, would be etched in their mind unmistakably. In the culture around them, they were seeing nothing but intense persecution at the hands of the Roman government. And there are many, many references to this very theme. And you need to understand that. Because as we move through the Gospel of Mark, you're going to understand that when he's talking about suffering, when he's talking about persecution, this is the precise reference that he has in mind. In fact, notice some of these things that would would have been etched in the minds of the audience of Mark and his Gospel itself. Look at verses... 12 and 13 of chapter 1. The Roman believers of the time, and even as a gospel account to unbelievers, this would have been etched in their minds. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. Now, that would have echoed in their minds. They would have known immediately that that signaled suffering, that signaled temptation. And even in some degree, that signaled persecution. And that would have been etched in their minds very, very clearly. Look also at chapter 8. Chapter 8. I alluded to it earlier. Chapter 8, verse 34. This again would have been so clear in the minds of John Mark's audience. And he summoned the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now just an aside there, you've often heard someone say in reference or to in an allusion to this verse, Well, you know, I just have my cross to bear. You've heard that, right? You may have even used that yourself. Well... If you were living back in the time of the writing of this gospel, that would not have been the meaning of that phrase. What would have been the meaning of that phrase? The meaning would have been death. That's what a cross meant for those who were disloyal to the government. 
And when he says, you must take up your cross and follow me, Jesus is signaling that if you want to follow me, you must die. It is not something that hangs on to me as though it were a ball and chain. It signals death. And he says, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. That's clearly a reference to death. Of course, what Jesus is referencing here is spiritual death. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. In other words, you are to be ready and prepared to die spiritually, to give up all that you have and all that you are. And then even in this context, it could very well have meant you were giving up your physical life as well. Were you willing to die for Christ? That's the question. And then he adds in verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels." You see, that has the tinge and the note of suffering to it, of persecution, of radical discipleship. He even goes on in chapter 10, does Mark, verse 30. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. What's he, what's he saying there? Well, if you give your life for the sake of the gospel, you may have to indeed give up these things physically. You may lose your physical mother and brothers and father and mother and farms for my sake, but what you will receive a hundred times over are your spiritual houses, spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters, spiritual mothers, spiritual children, and spiritual farms, along with, he says, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. You see the note there of great suffering, potential persecution, being a servant, being a supreme servant. He says in verse 33 later on, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and will spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And then that wonderful verse we read a moment ago, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Suffering, persecution, death, Intense scrutiny. That is the message of Mark's gospel, and his audience would have been very, very familiar with that message. They would have known immediately as God opened up their minds to understand exactly what Jesus is referring to. And then maybe a last passage in this regard, Mark chapter 13, verse 8. He says, know this also, that in the end, at the end of the age, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 11, and when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say what is ever given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death. And a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. You see, you can't miss the note that Mark is ringing here. 
These passages would be very, very vivid and very, very real to these Roman believers and anyone, for that matter, who would be Jesus' disciple. Well, that's the audience. That's who Mark is referring to. Number two, what about Mark's writing style? This is his audience. What about the style in which Mark writes? How does that fit in with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Well, Mark also has a very, very unique style of writing. Mark's style of writing is seeing Jesus in action. Seeing Jesus in action. He's action-oriented. Mark moves so fast, so quickly through his gospel, rather than than recount an in-depth study and teaching of Jesus, Mark shifts scenes very rapidly. He's always moving, and he does so in a very unique way. He changes the pictures of what Jesus is doing, moving in and through his public teaching ministry, and he changes them very, very fast. In fact, Mark uses a characteristic word, euthus, and it means when it's translated immediately, or some of your Bibles may say straightway, or forthwith. And you will see this over and over and over again in Mark's Gospel. He'll be giving you a scene about the life of our Lord, and as soon as you're well aware of what is going on in the life of Christ, Mark will then shift gears so rapidly and he'll say, immediately, Jesus did something else. And forthwith, he went here and did this. And straightway, he went over here and did this. You almost can't get the opportunity to catch your breath on all that Jesus is doing in one place and then Mark moves it to another. It becomes, as it were, a linking word for Mark and it links one story with another. In fact, Mark uses this little word, euthus, in his gospel 41 times. Can you imagine that? We would probably say today, well, that's not good style, Mark. You can't be using a word 41 times in one account. Move on. Be a better writer than that. One writer said this, It might be said that while Matthew and Luke furnish us with color slides of the life of Christ, and the apostle <clears throat> and, and John presents a studied portrait, Mark gives us a moving picture of the Master's ministry. I tried to think of that in my mind. If, if Matthew and Luke were to give us some color slides, and if John were to give us a settled and studied portrait of the life of Christ, what would be the contemporary application of this moving quickly in and through the Gospels? And I thought of a video. This is Mark. He's presenting us with a video clip of the life of Jesus Christ. And as you watch this video in front of you, you're seeing the life of Jesus, and then shortly it has been edited, and immediately you move on to another scene in this video. And that's why Mark's gospel has been called by many the gospel of action. The gospel of action. And this is Mark's unique contribution to the synoptics. This is his ministry. This is how he does it. He doesn't get bogged down with long genealogies about the life of our Lord. You know how the other Gospels present the genealogy of Christ? Mark does not. You notice that he goes right in to the person of Christ and his ministry. No genealogy. doesn't say anything about it. doesn't even tell us, in essence, where Jesus came from. What was his lineage? And you know that would have been very, very important to the life of a Jewish person, right? But to the Romans, of no significance. They were people of action. What was going on right now? And that's why Mark jumps right into it. Another writer said, Because the Romans wanted action, and because Mark's purpose was to present Jesus as the servant, it would be natural to find no genealogy in this gospel. Servants do not parade their pedigrees. Nor were the Romans concerned about the ancestry of their conquerors. What they wanted was action. The question was not where did he come from, but what can he do? Matthew, writing for Jews, begins his gospel with a Jewish genealogy of Jesus, tracing his lineage from Abraham down through David. The origin of Messiah was of supreme importance to the Jews. Luke furnished for his Greek readers a genealogy of Jesus that followed his ancestry back to Adam. John begins with what might be called the spiritual genealogy of Jesus. 
He was the pre-existent second person of the Godhead. All of this was irrelevant to the Roman mind. With a very brief introduction, Mark launches into a discussion of Jesus' public ministry. And it can then be preeminently called the pictorial gospel, or in our day, a video clip of the life of Christ. And what is it that Mark is picturing? Well, Mark presents Jesus in action. In Mark's gospel, if you've read it all the way through, maybe you've done a Bible reading through the year and you've read through the gospel of Mark in that kind of setting, you know that Jesus is constantly on the move, constantly healing, constantly exercising demons, confronting opponents, instructing the disciples. What Mark pictures is so fast the activity of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Christ, and the cost of following Him. In fact, He's so fast, it only takes Mark 13 verses to describe the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, and His temptation. Isn't that amazing? In just 13 verses. Of course, it'll take us probably 14 years to get through them. But at least Mark is quick. Jesus in action. Jesus doing His miracles. By the way, did you know that His miracle working in Mark is listed and contained in more than any other gospel? 18 of the miracles of Jesus, 18 of the 35 that we have recorded, are mentioned in Mark. Mark makes fewer allusions to the Old Testament than any other gospel account. He doesn't want to get bogged down again. For the Roman mind, it would have been somewhat irrelevant to find out how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mark is a self-effacing narrator. He tells his story with a minimum of editorial comments, and he says nothing about his purpose or his audience. And remember, all that God had done in John Mark's life has prepared him and has brought him to this very place. And as he now pins his account of the supreme servant, we know a little bit about the man, about the audience, and about the style. Now, let's look to Mark's gospel itself. And, again, confessing to you, we'll only introduce it, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you notice in some of your Bibles, you have a paragraph that begins with verse 1 and ends with verse 1. Many of you, like my New American Standard Bible, has verse 2 beginning with another full paragraph going all the way down to verse 8. And that is correct. For the thought of Mark is to title his gospel account. And this is its title. The title of the gospel account of Mark is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I said to you last Lord's Day evening, this little title at the beginning of our Bibles, the gospel according to Mark, that was not in the original version. That's simply supplied for us so that we can know what the title of this gospel account is. That wasn't in the original. The original starts this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that means that Mark is introducing us to the servant. He's introduced here. And what he'll do is introduce him to us in the first 13 verses. We see, first of all, that the gospel of the servant is given to us in verse 1. The forerunner of the servant is giving, given to us in verses 2 to 8. The baptism of the servant is given in verses 9 to 11. And the temptation of the servant is given to us in verses 12 to 13. I want to talk about verse 1 tonight. And as I do, I want you to give, to give you a very, very clear outline. Four parts in all. And the first part is appropriately titled The Preliminaries to Jesus' Ministry. The Gospel of the Servant, chapter 1, verse 1. First point, the preliminaries to His ministry. Notice what he says, first part of verse 1. The 
beginning. Arcane, the beginning. What does Mark mean by using this word beginning? You say, well, it really probably shouldn't mean that much. He's just simply saying, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Well, that would be partly true. Really what Mark is saying by this word beginning is that I'm going to give you in the first 13 verses a beginning introduction to who Jesus Christ is and what He has done as He comes now onto the scene of the world. The opening mark, the opening words of Mark's gospel then form a superscription which will indicate what is to follow in verses 2 to 13. But I think honestly the word beginning means much more than just beginning. It implies a continuation and certainly has to do with the initial ministry of Jesus, but it implies maybe what Luke means when he says in chapter 1 verse 1 of Acts, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Mark is telling us that. He's saying, this is the beginning. I'm about to tell you of the beginning of what Jesus is going to do and teach. And what is the beginning according to Mark? That's the second point. The proclamation of His ministry. Look at the second part of verse 1. The beginning of the gospel. The particular peculiarity and presentation of the ministry and now the proclamation, the beginning of the gospel. Now again, this word gospel is extremely important. You might, again, because of your contemporary understanding of what the word gospel means, if we don't stop and explain it, would rush off without knowing exactly what is to be in the minds of the hearers of Mark's gospel. Remember, these are Roman people. And they would have been very, very familiar even in their own context and in their own society with what euangelion, that's the word for gospel, really means. Because it didn't have anything to do with Christianity originally. The word euangelion simply meant good news. Good news. And Mark is saying this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And they would have understood what he meant. It's the good news concerning Christ. You say, what was the good news that the Romans themselves would have understood? Well, euangelion was originally a term that simply meant the announcing of glad tidings. In fact, the word gospel itself really didn't begin to be understood in the way we understood it or understand it until about the second century. It started out, first of all, as an oral comment, an oral tradition about the glad tidings of Christ. And then it became a missionary message on the part of those who took the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, out into the world. And then its message was contained in this book, the good news of Jesus Christ, the glad tidings about Him. And really it's referring to a person who was a herald. He was a herald of the glad tidings. He was a man who was to proclaim the news of the day. And it came from the lips of this appointed messenger. In fact, even the word gospel goes back long before this time. It was not first coined by Christians, but was already significant both in pagan and Jewish cultures. You've heard the phrase glad tidings. We often talk about that during Christmas time. And that really comes from the Romans themselves, the very people that Mark is writing to. This glad tidings, these joyful tidings, this good news was originally associated, get this, with the cult of the Roman emperor. You know that the Roman emperor was perceived by the people of his day as a god. And they were to assume that he was in power at God's behest. And the cult of the Roman emperor would celebrate, number one, the emperor's birthday. That was a big deal to them. Secondly, they would also celebrate his attaining of prominence with the majority of the people. And thirdly, they would announce the glad tidings of the emperor because he has ascended into power. And they would have assumed that the gods would have put the emperor in his place of ascension. And they would have these celebrations, all these festivals, and they would announce the glad tidings of the emperor. 
He has ascended to power. And they would have all of these wild festivals and celebrations. And do you know what the reports were called that spread the news about the emperor? Remember, they didn't have radio and television and news accounts and satellites and computers. All they had was word of mouth. And the person who was to announce the glad tidings throughout all of the land that a new emperor was in place was called the evangelist. The evangelist. And the message that he was proclaiming was the message of the evangel. The evangel. We know that from the inscriptions and papyri during the imperial age. I located one of them. It was found on a calendar inscription from about 9 B.C., only probably about five years before the actual birth of Christ. It was in Asia Minor, and it said this, Of the Emperor Augustus, the birthday, I told you that was important, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings which have been proclaimed on His account. Boy, doesn't that sound a lot like what Mark is saying? Doesn't that sound familiar? The beginning or the good news or the glad tidings or the joyful news of Jesus Christ. The Romans would have perked up and would have immediately understood that what Mark is proclaiming is that there is a new emperor on the scene. There is a new king among us. And that would have been of tremendous importance. And another thing that Mark tells us by using this word beginning is that not like the Roman emperor cult where they would look to the past to see everything about that emperor that they could worship, what he says is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in looking forward. This is what he is about to do. It's a forward-looking rather than a backward-looking. And you want to see a beautiful example of what the Old Testament said in its biblical evangel about the coming of Messiah, turn to Isaiah 52 and you'll see it in bold colors. Isaiah 52. You probably didn't realize that this was one of the great evangels of the Old Covenant. Verse 7 of Isaiah 52. We've put, them, put these words into a song. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. There's the evangel who announces peace. This is a person who is yelling throughout the land. He's the spokesman. And He brings good news, glad tidings of happiness who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. Do you see the festival atmosphere? Do you see the celebration that they're calling for? Here's what you're to do. Break forth, shout joyfully together, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. You see, that was the biblical evangel. And Mark comes along and says, that evangel is being fulfilled in your very hearing. You say, how so? Look at Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. This is the biblical evangel of John Mark. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of God. You see it there? The glad tidings, the announcement, the evangel. Here it is. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what Mark is going to tell us. And he can't resist. Right after his introduction, right in the very first part of his main statements, he says, this is the good news. And he even quotes Christ himself. Now can you imagine if you were a God-fearing Jew at that time, and your eyes were opened, 
and you recognize John the Baptist himself as the forerunner, foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament. And when he comes, he says, Make straight the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And you realize that John the Baptist himself was that evangel. He was the person who was announcing the good news. And he was saying, This is the one. This is the fulfillment. This is the person that we have been longing for as Jews. That would have been ringing in your minds. And it would have been being fulfilled in and for their very eyes. And all of a sudden, as you walked into the Galilean wilderness to confess your sins, and John the Baptist baptizes you in the Jordan River, and when he lifts you out of the water, and the next person in line is the very Messiah himself. Amazing! The Messiah has come. The heavens open up and the Spirit of God like a dove lands upon the Messiah with a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I don't think you'd be able to contain yourself. I think, as we will learn later, that Jesus and John the Baptist are the only ones that hear that message. And when they hear that message, can you imagine the response of John the Baptist? Well, we know what his response is. His response is, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Remember later on in another gospel account, he says, Lord, I don't need to do this. You need to baptize me. He is so overcome with gratitude to the Lord. What about these Romans? If the Jews would have thought those things because they would have been familiar with their Old Testament prophetic texts, what about the Romans? Well, they would have said, now, this is interesting. You're not telling us that this is the glad tidings or the good news of the Roman emperor. You're telling us about someone else. Who is this person that you're referring to that's bringing this good news? Where is the person that you're referring to? And Mark says, I'll tell you who it is. Thirdly, here's the person of the ministry. The person of the ministry. The preliminaries, the beginning. The proclamation, the gospel. And the person of the very gospel itself, verse 1, Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who it is, declares Mark. That's the one I'm talking about. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the person of the good news. You say, yeah, but were there many people at that time with that name? Sure there were. There were a lot of people who were named Jesus at that time. Jesus was a very common name. But Mark, knowing that that is a possibility, says Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus, a common name. It means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. You remember the Remark of Matthew in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 21, The virgin will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's why it says that. It means Jehovah is salvation. But he adds to this Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, Jehovah is salvation, the term Christ. And what is Christ? What would, have that, what would that have meant in their hearing? Christ, that was the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah. And Messiah means the Anointed One. Meshua, Messiah. It would have been very, very familiar to the Romans who would have been familiar with Jewish culture. And what he's saying is that the Anointed One has come. Jehovah is bringing salvation. And it is in this Messiah, the one who was predicted, the one who is coming, and that is the one I'm proclaiming to you. The one who has been prophesied has come, and this is the beginning. The beginning of what God is doing in initiating His redemptive work. Prophecy is unfolding before your very eyes. And do you think the Romans would be getting the picture? Mark says, I'm here proclaiming to you not some emperor with his good news, 
not his birthday, not his ascension into power, not his affirmation as a God. I'm proclaiming to you the power of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. He is the true Jehovah saves person. He is the true Messiah. This is the good news. It's not news about anyone else except Jesus. In fact, Mark is saying, by contrast, any news about anyone else is bad news. This is the good news. The Romans would understand Mark's proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. Beginning with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, Mark's evangel is announcing that prophesied event that has now come to pass. A new state of affairs has dawned. That's what he's saying. And looking at it from our vantage point, one commentator said it this way, Caesar and Christ, the emperor on the throne and the despised rabbi on the cross confront one another. Both are evangel to men. They have much in common, but they belong to different worlds. So Mark is intended to present the person of Jesus Christ as the good news, and his emphasis throughout the rest of his gospel, his evangel, his proclamation, is to present Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. But you say, wait a minute, are some of these Romans going to be convinced that this Jesus, this carpenter's son who will be later explained as the son of Mary and Joseph really is the Messiah? I mean... Come on, that's a pretty lofty title for a person who is named Jesus. There's a lot of people around here, and maybe even some of them claim to be the Messiah. How can we know that this Jesus is truly who you say He is, Mark? Well, then he adds, fourthly, the pre-existent one of the ministry. The preliminary, the beginning. The proclamation, the gospel. The person, Jesus Christ. And then he adds, the pre-existent one the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And immediately that sets apart this Jesus from every other supposed Messiah, every other wannabe Savior. This is Jesus Christ with the parenthetical phrase, the Son of God. And that sets Him apart. Quihu theu, the Son of God. And Mark wants his readers right at the outset to realize that this isn't simply some mere man, some new emperor on the scene, some new king that is attempting to dethrone the present emperor. This is none other than the divine Son of God. And he'll go on to show in his gospel that this Jesus, this Savior, this King, this Lord is the preacher and teacher and the one who has come from God the Father Himself. And even in His beginning, the baptism, the Holy Spirit and God the Father come alongside the Son to proclaim and to give validity and credibility and affirmation that this indeed is God's Son. And even though Mark will present Jesus as having come in the flesh and that He is a man... Surely at the end of the gospel account, we know that he is affirmed by men indeed as the Son of God. For doesn't Mark chapter 15 verse 39 say that one of the Roman centurion, when seeing Jesus on the cross as a person who has affirmed exactly what he said he was coming to do, doesn't he say, truly this was the Son of God? He understood that. We know at least one man in that Society knew who Jesus was and, of course, many more at God's sovereign design. So, as we close tonight, we ask ourselves some questions. What is our response to Mark's gospel? We know what it says now. We know that it says that in the preliminary, he was in the beginning, the announcer of good news about his own gospel and that He is Jesus Christ, the servant of all, Jehovah saves, and He is the divine one. But what about you? Do you affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you affirm that He is the suffering servant 
for which Mark will tell us about in his gospel? Can you come up with your own version of the evangel of the Son of God? I can. There was a time in my life where there was some good news that was announced to me, and it was through my reading of the gospel of Mark. And God, through this wonderful account of the Lord Jesus Christ, brought me in the Word of God to faith in Christ. It's a powerful gospel. It was powerful enough to save a wretched sinner like me. And I hope that as we come through this gospel account, no one who comes to the Bible church regularly with us in these studies will lose sight of the fact that Mark's purpose, his very goal, the very end of the writing of this gospel is that those who hear and read of it and read of the glad tidings will also come to faith in Christ. That's the point. Let me ask you another question. When you serve being a Christian and when you immolate the very servant himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think of what it means to suffer for Christ's sake? You serve in a way that sees your servanthood as emulating the one who saved you in his service? It says about him that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How do you serve? Do you serve by looking at the person of Jesus Christ and seeing the way he served? And do you serve in the same regard? Oh, maybe it doesn't mean that you're going to give your life for the sake of someone else. It may mean that. But it means unhidden, hidden, unnoticed, to the place where no one else in the human realm may see your service and your fellowship in the gospel. Do you serve nonetheless? The Lord Jesus was always the servant, the servant of all, the servant of servants, the servant. He said, I am among you as the one who serves. Luke 22. If we are to be like Christ, we must discipline ourselves to serve as Jesus served. Remember the want ad for the Pony Express? It said there was never a a shortage of volunteers. How about this one, Ed? Wanted. Gifted volunteers for difficult service in the local expression of the kingdom of God. Motivation to serve should be obedience to God, gratitude, gladness, forgiveness, humility, and love. Service will rarely be glorious. Temptation to quit place of service will sometimes be strong. Volunteers must be faithful in spite of long hours, little or no visible results, and possibly no recognition except from God in eternity. Any volunteers? Let's pray together. Our wonderful Lord, we thank you so much for giving us such a wonderful day the day in which Your Word has been proclaimed, the day in which we have been challenged to understand and obey Your will for our lives, and even this evening an opportunity to look at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We ask, Lord, that You would challenge us as we learn this very account of our dear Savior and how He suffered And may through this account of his life and his teaching reverberate in our minds constantly as we think about our own service to him. The hours are long. The temptations are great. The desire to quit is often. But we cannot because he did not. Because he gave his life as a ransom for us. Lord, may we, as He, be faithful, serving because it is what You have asked us to do, being willing to suffer, being willing to be persecuted for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. We ask that You would make and mold and shape us 
into the very testimony of the evangel itself as we serve others by serving you. Thank you for a wonderful beginning to this gospel account. May we be challenged continually as we think of what it means to serve because we have been served with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.